New Testaments to the Epistle of 1 John. I am delighted to be able to continue this study. We're going to be looking at one verse, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. I must confess it was my intention to preach at least three verses, um, but I, I think that it is going to benefit us to sit on this one verse this morning, to be fed from just this one verse. But as is the fear that when you read just one verse, that you're going to be atomizing the Word of God and not seeing the whole context, what I want to do this morning is I want to read the verses again that precede this verse in chapter 3 to set the stage for us. So now with your finger there, read with me. I'm going to begin in verse 26. The word of the Lord says this. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And now our verse. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. This is the word of the Lord. It's a, a providence that many today, uh, if not our whole country, is celebrating a national holiday known as Mother's Day. And immediately the, uh, the little reformed uh, uh, conscience in us rises up and says, well, we ought not to recognize Mother's Day. Well, brothers and sisters, Mother's Day is not something that we celebrate in the church in our order of worship, but all of our life is not worship in the sense that the regulative principle applies to all of our life. It applies to what we do here. But there is something that we can mention about Mother's Day, which does apply to what we're going to be reading today. This is a holiday that has been given to us in culture, a tradition, if you will, to remember something very good, to remember the mothers who are among us. To remember even our first mother, whom we all come from, Eve. And, interestingly enough, we give gifts on this day to our mothers. We give flowers. What, what a blessing this national holiday is to those who are in the flower business. 
But we also give cards. We call it a Hallmark holiday. And so we think about all the cards that were made. I was blessed to have my children make cards for their mother and what a joy it was for them to make those cards and to give them to her. But there's, there's a love that goes beyond even the wonderful love that we have for the mothers among us. And this is what John wants us to see this morning. It's a, a love that has given us life, which I think in some ways is even seen in giving flowers to those mothers that we love. We're giving something that is living, at least for a time. But we're also giving cards, something that is written. And here is what John wants us to see, and he's written it for us to see. So as we consider this first verse of chapter 3, I want you to see what John wants us to see. See, John says, what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Here the Apostle John is giving a commentary on what he previously said at the end of chapter 2 in our Bibles. This is why we read it in context. Look with me at the end again of chapter 2, starting at verse 28. We read it. Let's consider it again. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And then John goes on to say, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And it's this idea of being born of him that I think is sending John into a type of doxological praise. By the way, here again is a good reminder that the versification and the chapter breaks that are found in our Bibles are not inspired. I'm not sure what translation that you're reading, but in the one that I'm preaching from, in the ESV, you may notice that it groups to be the end of chapter 2 with the beginning thought of chapter 3. This is clear by John urging us in the first word of chapter 3 to see. Well, see what? John has repeatedly reminded us that believers have received the new covenant blessing through the prophet Jeremiah of knowing God. He said that in chapter 2, verse 13. Furthermore, that believers have had their sins forgiven. Chapter 2, verse 12. But now the apostle overflows in a sort of doxological praise after concluding that the reason for all of this is that everyone who is granted these new covenant gifts has been born of him. And because we are born of him, we are called children of God. 
Now, I was encouraged last week when we covered this verse to have conversations with several of you about something that I brought up. I brought up that at the end of the pericope in chapter 2, in particular, where it says that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, I asked the question rhetorically, who is the him? Who is the him that we have been born of? And I discussed how commentators wrestle. Is it the son? Is it the father? Who is the him? So what I want to do is to not only repeat what I said in that sermon, but to unpack it a little further, because I think it will help us as we consider verse 1 of chapter 3. So I want to do a brief discourse on Trinitarian theology. So last time, if you remember, and as I've just mentioned, that commentators debate on who the him is that we are born of. We discuss then, naturally, that the Father comes to mind, especially because he is the one whom John is pointing to here in verse 1 of chapter 3 when he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. But the debate ensues because the appearing of the Son at the second coming is in view in verse 28 of chapter 2. And we're talking about the hymn of, chapter, uh, of verse 29. So do you see there that we have the Son in reference in verse 28? And then we have in 29 the Him whom we are born of. And then the very next verse talks about the Father. So, some think, and some commentators think, that John has left us with a sort of conundrum. Which member of the Trinity is he speaking of? Commentators will go both ways. I've read some who say it's the Father. I've read some who say it's the Son. This is a tendency, brothers and sisters, that I want you to be aware of. When we think about the works of the Trinity, because we often do this in our minds, because we recognize and confess that in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. That's from our confession. Chapter 2, paragraph 3. But sadly, we have a tendency to not fully grasp what those words communicate, and we wrongly conclude that it is possible for a member of the Trinity to act alone and apart from the others. Most often this is thought of the Father. I was having a conversation recently with a, a brother in Christ, and we're going over Scripture verses, and he points to a section in Scripture where it talks about creation, and he says, who is this talking about? It says God. And he's concluding that it is the Father alone that's being spoken of. See, we have a tendency to do this. And it's most often applied to the Father. That he can work independently of the Son and the Spirit. May we never think that. Therefore, the conclusion that we came to last time, if you recall, was that in the ultimate sense of who the Him is, preceding this first verse in chapter 3, who are we born of? In the ultimate sense, the answer is God. 
It's a simple answer. No theological pun intended. And yet it's profound at the same time. The answer is God. Believers are born of the Father, of the Son, and the Spirit. It is true, and we can see it plainly in Scripture, that oftentimes a particular work is attributed to one of the persons. But in the ultimate sense, all the works of God are one. Why? Why are all the works of God one? Why can we not say that the Father can do something at the exclusion of the Son and the Spirit? It's because the Lord, our God, is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6.4. This is known as the unity of God or the doctrine of divine unity. Now, Pastor Nate has been leading us in the book of Ephesians and has been a great help in teaching us the very same thing from chapter 1 of Ephesians. He introduced to us the doctrine of divine inseparable operations, that all the divine works are united and one in the Godhead. The doctrine of inseparable operations is true because it, it assumes an indivisibility of the Father, the Spirit, and the Son in essence. This is precisely why the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, possess the same nature and the same will. There is one undivided nature and one divine will. Because of this, all the acts of God are inseparable. Do you see why it's a simple answer and yet a profound answer? And so who are we born of? In verse 20. 29, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the Scripture confesses in various places that we're born of all three. Why? Because God is one. Here is the Pauline pattern of from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. It makes sense. And all this is comforting. This isn't just a doctrine that doesn't have an application. Again, we've said time and time again that knowing God is the application. But there's more. It is comforting because one of the applications of this doctrine of divine inseparability, these, this divine inseparable operations of God, is that we have communion and fellowship with all of the members of the Trinity. Maybe you've talked to somebody who speaks of knowing Christ. I know Jesus but I really don't know much about the Father. Or maybe you know someone who just talks about the Holy Spirit to the exclusion of the Son and the Father. In evangelicalism, sadly, this is the tendency for many. And oftentimes it makes us feel aloof of what the Father has done for us and is doing in us. The comforting fact is that every believer is in full communion and has sweet fellowship with the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Let me just explain this from something that our Lord said in John 14, 23. Jesus said this, if, any, if anyone loves me, he will follow my word, and my Father will love him, and we 
will come to him and make our dwelling with him. That's an amazing statement. It's an amazing statement that confesses to us the Trinity and the inseparable operations. We've been talking in 1 John about how the Holy Spirit indwells us. He anoints us. He's within us. But did you hear what John just said? Jesus said, My Father and I will come to him and make our dwelling with him. We don't want to think that when we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that this is something that we have that is a work of the Spirit apart from the Father and the Son. We can't divide God like that. He is one. And so as John has just got done teaching us about how we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that we have an anointing from God, chapter 2, verse 20, Jesus says that he and the Father will come and make their dwelling with him, the one who loves Christ. John Gill rightly has said of this verse, the saints are the dwelling places or the temples of the living God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so this informs the presentation that John is making now. When John says, see, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. John wants us to see the work of God in adopting us and presenting us to the world as his adopted children. He has proclaimed us as his adopted children through apostolic proclamation and through the written word of God. And John wants to make certain that we don't miss the grandeur, magnitude, and beauty of it. And so all that to be said... When John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, what I don't want you to think is that this is a peculiar love that the Father has for us that is excluding the Son and the Spirit. This is why this brief study in Trinitarian theology is informing us what John is getting at ultimately in verse 1. John is not dividing the works of God. He's calling attention to the Father because it is appropriate to mention the Father as being Father. And God is often pleased to act that way in creation. But in the ultimate sense, brothers and sisters, this is a love that the Father has, that the Son has, and the Spirit has for us. And so as we start to unpack the weight of the grandeur, the beauty, the magnitude of this love that God has for us, I want to consider something that the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans. So if you're able, turn to the book of Romans to chapter 4. In chapter 4 of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul after illustrating justification by faith alone from the Old Testament, brings up this fact of adoption. And he too overflows with amazement. Speaking of the righteousness of God through faith, he begins to talk about Abraham 
and how the scriptures testify of righteousness being applied to his account. Not through works, but through faith. Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Paul then goes on to say that all those who share the faith of Abraham share in the promise of salvation, and that this promise comes from God. Look at verse 17. Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is what happens when God calls his children. Not only does he adopt them, but even before that, he calls them. We know about this from what's called the golden chain in the book of Romans. That those whom God has foreknown, he does a series of things that escalate, that end in our glorification. He makes us something that we were not. As Paul would say in verse, four, in verse 17 of chapter 4 of Romans, that he gives life to the dead. That's what he does with us. That's what he did with us, brothers and sisters. If you are in Christ this morning, he gave you life from the dead. And he calls into existence the things that do not exist. Echoes of creating everything out of nothing. Creation ex nihilo, as theologians call it. How he created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them out of nothing. And so he does with us, those who believe. Again, not because of something good in you did God call you. But he created you out of nothing. He gave life to you when you were dead. So here's the point. Before God effectually called us and brought us to spiritual life from the dead, we were not his children in a holy sense. Yes, it is true that we are and were his children in a creational sense, as is every image bearer of God, who is born into this world, belonging to the family of mankind. This was Paul's argument in Acts 17, verse 29. But we were not called children of God before our adoption. Do you know what we're called before our adoption? Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, verse 3, we're called children of wrath. If you're in Christ, you recognize this. You recognize that before you were called, you were dead. You had no spiritual life. You received many blessings from the hands of the Lord, and yet you did not give him thanks for them. You didn't call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. You did not hate your sin. In fact, you loved your sin. And that is the story with all of us. Because we were all outside of Christ. And that's the story of everyone who is still outside of Christ. They love their sin. But praise be to God that he calls into being things that are not and this is what is behind John's wonder. 
This is what he wants us to see. That God would adopt sinners and bestow upon them every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. That he would make us co-heirs with Christ. You know you're not worthy of that, and I know I'm not worthy of that. We who have inherited sin and guilt and shame through our first father, the first Adam, have now inherited eternal life, honor, and glory through the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Rest, weary traveler, on your way to the celestial city. If God is for you, who can be against you? We've heard it many times before, how we need to hear it all the more. So when Paul makes, or I'm sorry, when John makes this doxological uh, um, point, when he overflows by saying, see, look at this, my children, come, look at this. Paul makes a similar doxological outburst in unison with the Apostle John. Turn to Romans 8, if you're in the book of Romans. Put your finger on verse 15. John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. There's even an exclamation point in our English translations. There was no punctuation in the original. The editors understood. John's overflowing in a doxological outburst here. Now, verse 15, Paul says, You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Again, exclamation point. The translators get it. Paul is doing the same thing that John is doing in chapter 3, verse 1. And he uses interesting language. He's not just saying that we cry father but we cry abba father a very personal endearing term again think of think of the context of the first hearers of first john and even the the epistle to the romans remember this proto-gnosticism is moving through arguing for a different christ a different gospel a different ethic and there's this idea that the God of the Old Testament was an angry, evil God. And Jesus is now a loving, caring God. Paul is saying, we call this God of the Old Testament, Abba, Papa, Father. An endearing term. A term of love. And this is the love that God has shown us. Not that just we not just that we are called children, but that we love him. We love God. Not because we first loved him, but because he first loved us. Again, he's calling these things into being out of nothing. Before you were in Christ, you did not desire God. You you did not love him. 
There are many who say they love God, but they don't do what God says. Again, that, that doesn't qualify our love, but it shows that our love is genuine, that it's real. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. John has said here in the epistle already that there are those who claim to know him and yet do not do what he commands. What love God has shown us. And every time you recognize that you love God, give thanks, because that is a work of God, that you love him at all. But lastly, John makes a doxological praise that continues. Not only is he saying, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, but then he adds this, and so we are. And so we are. Now, I'll confess that there are commentators who will argue with this, because it is a textual variant. There are manuscripts that don't have, and so we are. And so some think that it was added later. But here's what I want you to see before I make my point so you know it's valid. John goes on in the very next line to say, Beloved, we are God's children now. And this is the point, is that we're not waiting to be God's children. We're not waiting for this love to be poured out upon us from the Father, from the Son, and from the Holy Spirit. It's already, it's already and yet there is a sense in which it's not yet. And this is going to be coming in the following verses, which, which we'll get to next time. But it's already. We are already children of God. John doesn't say that, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we will be called children of God. No, he says that we are. We are children of God. Now. This is an obvious, important point for us to grasp with both hands. How many of us live day to day as if we're trying to be found worthy of our Lord? How many of us struggle with sin and think, ourselves, think to ourselves, God could never love a wretch like me? What's worse is that we might be tempted to look around and think, the Lord is probably more pleased with the person sitting next to me than he is with me. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are his. You have been purchased. You are clothed in his righteousness now. When God looks at you, he sees Christ's righteousness. And when he looks at the cross, he sees your sins being paid for there. Do you see what kind of love the Father has given to us? But in the very same verse, and in switching gears almost enough to burn out the clutch, John says, 
The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. When you are wrapped up in the grandeur, when you are wrapped up in the doxological praise of the Apostle John, in considering the love that God has shown us, you would think that it's all easy sailing from here, that there's, it's all blue skies, so much that if God loves us this way, our physical persecutions shouldn't exist. In fact, it seems strange. May I recall you to the book of Job and Job's friends trying to account for why it is that these things are happening to Job. And so it is with us. Lord, if you love me, why are these bad things happening in my life? Why does the world reject me? This is your world. This is my father's world after all. And yet I'm persecuted for the name of Christ. So John quickly transitions into this idea. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. What John is doing here is interpreting the persecution. Why is it? Why is it that the world hates Christians? I can give examples, but you don't need them. You know them. And John is saying, the reason is because the world did not know him. We've been talking time and time again in 1 John about latching on to this idea of knowing, right? And we're drawing a beeline to Jeremiah, saying that this was the blessing of the new covenant prophesied by Jeremiah, that all those who are in Christ, that he's going to make a new covenant and they will all know me, says the Lord. And so when John says the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him, it's because in practical terms, they're in a different covenant. They're in the broken covenant of works. And they hate God. And because they hate God, they hate you. And this is not foreign to us. Jesus says, if the world hates me, it's going to hate you. Are you above your master? Are you above your teacher? And when you understand this and the depth of this, when your doxological praise informs the persecution that you receive in this world, it's not, this is perplexing. Why are these things happening to me? Rather, it's like the apostles in the book of Acts when they're whipped and scourged and they leave rejoicing. Seeing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. We've talked about it before, how often our, our trials are detached from our thinking of who we are in Christ and what is going on in this fallen world that we live in. The world, bad enough that the world doesn't know us, those who are adopted by God as his children. 
worse that they do not know him. And I want to show you this as we close in stunning detail. Turn, as we have so many times before, from John's epistle to John's gospel. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Again, the experience of those in the first century, brothers and sisters, was oftentimes, if not consistently, worse than our experience here in our lot that the Lord has us in this country, in this place. And yet, they were men just like us and women experiencing these same, these same persecutions, liable to being perplexed. But John shares with us this testimony in verse 9 of chapter 1. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now we've talked about who that true light was. It's Jesus, the Son. He was the one coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Again, bad enough to not recognize God's children. Far worse to not recognize God. But listen to what it says in verse 12, because it, it, it correlates with what we're talking about in verse 1 of chapter 3 of John's epistle. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, here it is, children of God, who were born, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Again, we need to keep coming back to this. If you're born again, it's a gift from God. John is clear. We're not born of blood. In other words, not because of the family you're born into. The Jews at that time thought that they were children of Abraham, and that made them legitimate children. That they would all inherit eternal life. No. You're born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, not according to your studies, not according to the prayers you make, not according to the good works that you do. Again, all good things, but that is not why we are born of God. Not because of the will of man. Oh, how many of us as parents desire the the ability to take out the hearts of stone from our children and give them hearts of flesh. No. One is not born of God that way either. But of God. But of God. This is the truth that is weaved all through Scripture. This is the truth that is proclaimed in the New Covenant. This is the truth that John wants us to see. John wants us to see this, to lay hold of it, to not miss it. See 
what kind of love that the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for blessing us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Lord, remind us, especially in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our suffering, that we are children now. That you have called us effectually by the gospel. That you have drawn us to your son, Jesus Christ. And remind us, Lord, that no one is able to come to Christ unless you do the work, Father, by drawing them to your Son. Oh, Lord, the comfort that we receive knowing that the salvation of those we love is out of our hands. What a burden it places on us when we think that we can save. It is you and you alone. We thank you for keeping that in your hands. For you are the only one who has the power to bring into being things that do not exist. And so we thank you. We thank you for feeding us this morning out of your word. We give all the praise to you, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.